Paul Levinson, and welcome to Light On, Light Through, episode 53, Lost 4 and 8. And the four in there is the fabulous fourth season of Lost, which has just concluded its first series of episodes, which total eight. And in my opinion, and the opinion of many other viewers, this may be the best season of Lost, at least as good as the first season. And I think in some ways even better. Now, I've been reviewing each of these episodes on one of my other podcasts, Levinson News Clips. And each of these reviews were done uh, about sometimes 15, 20 minutes after the show was over, uh, no later than the next morning after the Thursday night broadcast of Lost. And so what I thought I'd do in this special edition of Light On, Light Through is put together all of these eight reviews. And actually, there are more than eight reviews because in one case, I included a special bonus review. That was after the first episode. So what you're going to hear are a total of nine reviews done again pretty much after each of the shows. And you'll be able to hear the evolution of this season of Lost as I saw it watching each episode in real time. So, I hope you enjoy it, and at the end, after I finish my review of Episode 8, I will also say a few additional things about this first part of Season 4, a few fascinating questions and issues that emerged in Episode 8. So, enjoy. Author Paul Levinson. I'm Paul Levinson, and this is Levinson News Clips. Well, the premiere of Lost Season 4 last night picked up on the island right where the stunningly spectacular finale of Season 3 left off, which means this season opener was extraordinary, too. Not only that, but we were treated to another flash-forward, taking place a little earlier in time than the flash-forward in the Season 3 finale but forward enough in time to have Jack well off the island, but not doing well, and Hurley off the island, and not doing well at all. There's an Oceanic Six that Hurley talks about. We know that Jack and Kate and now Hurley got off the island. So the first new tantalizing question that arises this season is, who are the other three? Well, uh, we know it can't be Juliet or Ben because they weren't on the oceanic flight. But other than that, all possibilities are open. Now, Hurley is tormented off the island. He gets a visit from Charlie, who admits that he's dead. But Charlie tells Hurley, they need you. And they presumably are the people back on the island. This was a powerful scene which also had a nice play on the classic Samuel Johnson anecdote about how to disprove that the world isn't yours or someone else's dream. Johnson kicks a stone, winces, and says, you disprove it thusly. Hurley wants Charlie to prove that he's not a figment of Hurley's imagination, and Charlie proves this by slapping Hurley. 
Of course, just as with Samuel Johnson, all that this proves is that the dream entails a kick or a slap. In Lost, dreams come packed with punches. But Hurley's now convinced that he has to go back to the island. He later tells this to Jack, who is saying they cannot. Hurley is to Jack in this episode, as Jack was to Kate in the season three finale. Meanwhile, the action back on the island is captivating, too. The Losties split along how seriously to take Charlie's warning from the looking glass. So Locke, Sawyer, Claire, Hurley, as well as Ben and Rousseau and Alex and Carl elect to stay on the island and keep away from, and if necessary, fight the people that Jack has called in for the rescue. While Jack, Kate, Rose, and Bernard and others are waiting and wanting to get rescued. And, of course, as we well know from last year, and this year as well with the flash-forwards, something will go terribly wrong. Whatever that is can be barely, if at all, seen now, because it somehow results in Jack and Hurley off the island, even though at the end of the first episode of the new season it looks as if Hurley is staying on the island. A great beginning of an ending. And a nice unexpected touch in this episode with Lance Riddick, who plays Cedric Daniels on The Wire, putting in what I hope will be a continuing appearance on Lost. When you walk through the garden... Athens, 2042 A.D. She ripped the paper in half, then ripped the halves, then ripped what was left again into bits and pieces of history that could have been. Sierra Waters had read once that, years ago, it was thought that men made love for the thrill, while women made love for the sense of connection it gave them. She ripped the paper in half, then ripped the halves, then ripped what was left again into bits and pieces of history that could have been. Entertainment Weekly says the plot to save Socrates is challenging fun. The New York Daily News says it's a Da Vinci-esque thriller. And Curled Up with a Good Book says... Sierra Waters is sexy as hell. You can find out more about The Plot to Save Socrates by Paul Levinson at theplottosavesocrates.com. I'm Paul Levinson, and this is Levinson News Clips, and I'm back with a special bonus podcast with some further thoughts about the excellent premiere of Lost Season 4. 
Well, I think the decisive moment in this first episode of the new season of Lost came when Hurley decided on the island to go with Locke and explained his reasoning to the group. Hurley was moved by a combination of emotion, not wanting Charlie's death to have been in vain, and clear logic. Charlie had indicated that there was something not right about the rescue effort, and it made no sense to just ignore it. Emotion and logic have always been in combat on the island, or faith versus reason, often embodied in Locke versus Jack. But this was an extraordinary moment for Hurley, and one which I think will set up all the remaining episodes of the series. But at this point, let's look at who went with Hurley, and who not, and why. Those who went with Hurley. Well, I put Locke, Ben, and Rousseau in the same category. All have a deep connection to and affinity for the island. They would be the most sensitive to the danger of the rescuers. And actually, Ben and Locke were not wanting to go along with the rescue from the very beginning. Indeed, not wanting to leave the island, period. And Locke was the one who first said he was walking away from the rescue. So we could just as easily call this part, Who Went with Locke? Alex and Carl are pretty much in the same category as Rousseau. But Claire went with Hurley for a different reason, out of love for Charlie and needing to believe his message. In other words, Claire went with the emotional part of Hurley's argument. In contrast, Sawyer agreed with the logic. Charlie had tried to warn them, so where was the payoff in ignoring that? We might have expected Sawyer to try to convince Kate to come with him, but there's no disputing that Sawyer's decision to walk was consistent with the cold reasoning of self-preservation. A reasoning which those who chose not to go with Hurley either rejected or ignored. Let's look at why. Those who did not go with Hurley. Well, Rose acted out of emotion and some logic. She does not trust Locke. She says she won't go anywhere with that man. But she does not address the logic of putting aside Charlie's warning. Jack, of course, is not going with Hurley. Jack is the leader of getting the Losties rescued. He'll kill, if necessary, to do this. He won't let anything get in the way, including evaluating the importance of Charlie's warning. Now, this moment, I think, represents the clear beginning of the deterioration of Jack's capacity to be a leader. He needed to do better than just ignore Charlie's warning. Jack also wasn't thinking too clearly when he agreed to let Ben go with Locke. True, Ben was a flawed source of information, but Ben was still far and away the best source of information about the island. And since the rescuers hadn't yet arrived, conceivably Ben could have been some help if something inexplicable happened on the island. Let's look at Kate. Well, she thinks much like Jack, though Kate has a reason not to want to get rescued, her problem with the police. But like Jack, Kate's wanting to get off the island is beyond logic at this point. 
Juliet also hates the island with a passion. Of course, everyone does, with the exception of Locke and Ben, but Juliet brings something a little extra to her hatred. And she also has a connection to Jack, which, as with Kate, would make Juliet not want to walk away from Jack and go with Hurley. Sun and Jin probably have the best, most pressing reason to want to leave the island and would take any risks to do it. Sun wants to live and enjoy her baby and her life with Jin. Even if they were inclined to take Charlie's warning seriously, logic might still well lead Sun and Jin to go with the rescuers. Now let's look at Desmond. He made no statement, one way or the other, but we didn't see him walk with Hurley and Locke, which I think is odd because Desmond knows better than anyone the sacrifice that Charlie made. Has Desmond seen some sort of future which tells him he should stay with Jack? Is he thinking that that's still the best way to get off the island and get back to Penny? Or is Desmond just so traumatized by what happened with Charlie and Desmond's inability to change his vision, or perhaps by a new terrible vision, that Desmond is too paralyzed to act? I'm guessing we'll see more of Desmond on this in the next few weeks. And then there's Saeed. Logic says Saeed should have gone with Hurley. So why is Saeed staying with Jack? Because Saeed thinks he can fight his way off the island even if the rescuers are hostile? Not entirely persuasive. If you look at the group of people who are staying with Jack, I think they are clearly less committed to that action than the people going with Hurley. Saeed and Desmond especially seem likely to rethink their decision if time allows. But my guess is we'll be seeing a lot of shuffling in these two groups in the week or weeks ahead. At very least enough to get Hurley off the island with Jack and Kate. Hello, this is David G. Hartwell. I'm a senior editor at Tor and Forge Books in New York. I've been editing science fiction since 1970. I've edited a lot of people over the course of my career, but I'm pleased to also be the editor of Paul Levinson. I edited his first novel, The Silk Code, and I edited his most recent novel, The Plot Saves Socrates, and all the books in between. Hey, I'm Paul Levinson, and this is Levinson News Clips, and I'm continuing with my reviews of the great new season four of Lost. Today I'll be reviewing episode 4.2, which I think of as five flashbacks and three rational explanations. Well, Lost is certainly firing on all cylinders this new season, with two great episodes in a row. Last night, we learned a lot of what's up with the rescue team that Naomi called in. There were four people on the team, and as Naomi puts it in her flashback, that's flashback five on the show, we have Daniel Faraday a head case, according to Naomi, that is a nut, a somewhat psycho, but maybe with an ability to sense the future, because Daniel Faraday senses something about Oceanic 815 when he hears the false report, 
which he doesn't know is false, about the plane being found with no survivors. He sees that on television. That's flashback one. Second character in this four-person team, Miles Strom, a ghost hunter. He's in flashback two. Charlotte Lewis is the third, an anthropologist who discovers the bones of a polar bear in the Tunisian desert with a Dharma collar or tag. Aha! Flashback number three and rational explanation number one. So now we know how the polar bear got to be on the island. Likely a Dharma experiment in breeding or genetic engineering to make polar bears that can live in warm climates. Frank Lapidus is the fourth member of the team. He's a drunk, in Naomi's words, but he's also a pilot, as Matthew Abaddon, played by our friend Lance Riddick from Wire, says to Naomi, and as we already know. That's flashback number four. So Lost is back to flashbacks in this episode, but they're shorter and they're multiple, and my guess is we'll see flashbacks this season for the new characters with flash-forwards for the old hands. Speaking of which, we get rational explanation number two when Locke reveals that he survived Ben's shot because it passed right through Locke and missed the kidney that Locke did not have. Presumably Ben deliberately aimed the shot there. But this raises the possibility that perhaps there is a rational explanation for all the miraculous recuperations on the island. Mikhail already gave one for his surviving the electrical jolt last season. Maybe there's also some rational, not supernatural, explanation for Mikhail's survival on the looking glass. Because, just to top things off, Ben shoots Charlotte point-blank. But she survives unhurt because she's wearing a bulletproof vest. And there we have rational explanation number three in last night's show. But why would Ben shoot her? Because he knows that her team came to the island to get him. And what's the team's connection to the false report about Oceanic 815 going down into the ocean with everyone on board lost? Well, that's grist for the mills of future episodes, which I can't wait to see. And by the way, if you can't wait to hear these weekly podcasts on Lost, you can get them at 415-223-4124. Just call that number and these podcasts will be delivered to you on your cell phone, a free subscription. Enjoy. Hi, this is Cory Doctorow, author of Overclocked and other books. You're listening to Paul Levinson's magnificent novel, The Silk Code. Paul Levinson's Silk Code, about an ancient biotech war raging on in secret for centuries. I'm Paul Levinson. This is Levinson News Clips, and I'm continuing today with my reviews of the fabulous season four of Lost. And we'll talk today about last night's episode three. Well, Lost just keeps getting better and better this season. I thought episode three was the best so far. 
which is saying a lot since the first two episodes were superb. Episode three was Saeed's show, his flash forward. And as I mentioned last week, I have a feeling we'll be seeing flash forwards for all the old hands this year and flashbacks for the newbies on the island. Saeed is a hitman in this future. He's working for, well, I'll tell you about that at the end of this review. Also of importance is exactly when this flash forward is taking place. Before the Hurley Jack flash forward in the season four premiere, after the Jack Kate flash forward in the season three finale, sometime in between? Well, the answer is important because it could tell us who Hurley and Jack are afraid of. But at this point, it's not clear. Meanwhile, back on the island, we learn a bunch of significant things, including why Hurley felt so guilty about siding with Locke. Hurley expressed this guilt in his flash-forward two weeks ago. We learn why Sawyer went with Locke. That was pretty obvious. There's nothing for Sawyer off the island. And I also think Sawyer likes the way he feels more human on the island. We have a great scene between Sawyer and Kate, which concludes with Sawyer asking Kate to try staying with him on the island. He wants to try playing house with her. And there's some kind of temporal 30-minute anomaly in play on the island. Let's look a little more carefully at that one. Faraday, the Charlie-like somewhat mental physicist, discovers that a payload delivered to the island from the ship at his command arrives with a clock that reads 31 minutes into the future. This is also after not arriving at the time it was supposed to arrive. Now, assuming the clock in the payload is not just broken or running fast, of course not, this is highly significant. And it may connect in some way to Desmond's visions. For that matter, it may connect to the sense of the future that Faraday seemed to have at the beginning of last week's episode two. Desmond and Saeed leave the island with Frank and Naomi's body, which Saeed insists on taking. Why? And why is Saeed so affected by Naomi's death? Now, my best guess is they knew each other before the Oceana crash, and we'll discover this in some future episode with a new character flashback that includes Naomi. But who is the RG on the bracelet Saeed takes off of Naomi's wrist? Someone on the boat off the island? We did hear the name Regina. Well, this is part of the larger puzzle of Saeed in this edge-of-your-seat and edge-of-your-mind episode. He does some killing in his flash-forward. He almost falls in love, all on assignment from his boss, Ben. Now, it was already clear before the end of this episode, and in fact from the photo we saw last week, that Ben was lying when he said he never left the island. Ben lies about most things. But, you know, he didn't lie about Boston winning the World Series, as Jack confirms with Frank. Ah, Frank, a man after my own heart. He's a true Yankee fan. But Ben clearly had an international jet-setting life. And in the flash forward, he's in command of an organization fighting the organization that's trying to kill him. Which may or 
may not be a threat to Jack, Kate, Hurley, and all of our island friends off and still on the island. And this also gives a little more weight to the possibility that Ben is in the coffin in the season three finale. Because, at least at this point, we know Ben's off the island. In contrast to the other candidates for the coffin, such as Locke and Michael. What a series. I'll be back here next week with a review of the next episode this season. In the meantime, here's a word from our sponsor. AD. She ripped the paper in half, then ripped the halves, then ripped what was left again into bits and pieces of history that could have been. Sierra Waters had read once that, years ago, it was thought that men made love for the thrill, while women made love for the sense of connection it gave them. Sierra had always done everything for the thrill. I'm Paul Levinson, and welcome to Levinson News Clips. And tonight I'm continuing with my reviews of the spectacular Season 4 of Lost. I'll be talking about Episode 4 tonight in a special two-part extended edition of this episode. First, I'll review Episode 4, and then I'll talk about some interesting questions which I think arose in last night's episode. Well, let's begin with the review. It was Kate's episode all the way. We learned why she was not in prison when we saw her in the future in the finale of season three. We learned in episode four that Jack loved her after they got off the island, and she loved Jack, but what was waiting for her at the end of season three, the he is keeping Jack from going to her. But why? He's a little boy, maybe about three, and his name is Aaron, Claire's baby, presumably. But what happened to Claire? Is she still on the island, involuntarily separated from her baby? Or is she one of the eight who survived the crash, but didn't survive getting back into the world at large? We learned more about this cover story last night. Eight are said to have survived the crash, but only six are alive in this future. The Oceanic Six. Meanwhile, back on the island in the time before anyone other than Michael left, with Desmond and Saeed's helicopter now missing, we see Locke becoming more like Ben, giving Kate perhaps more reason to hate him, to not want to go to his funeral if he is the one in the coffin in the season three finale. But I'm still thinking it's most likely Ben. And there was a great scene with Sawyer and Kate. They have something, no doubt, but it's not as deep as with Jack. It was a great show last night with every ticking minute. 
And I'll be back with part two of this podcast after a few words from our sponsor. Entertainment Weekly says the plot to save Socrates is challenging fun. The New York Daily News says it's a Da Vinci-esque thriller. And Curled Up With A Good Book says Sierra Waters is sexy as hell. You can find out more about The Plot to Save Socrates by Paul Levinson at theplottosavesocrates.com. Back now with some further thoughts about last night's heart-wrenching powerhouse episode of Lost. First, Jack and Aaron. I'm still thinking about what it could be about Aaron that keeps Jack from going back with Kate to her home after she invites him. Jack clearly loves Kate deeply. If Aaron were Sawyer's baby, then okay, perhaps he wouldn't want the pain of coming into Kate's home. But even that is not really convincing. And if Aaron is indeed Claire's baby... What could have happened with Claire and Jack and Aaron that would cause Jack to have such a strong reaction? If Jack had been responsible for Claire's death or leaving her on the island, why would that keep him from getting together with Kate and Claire's baby? Just the sight of Aaron would be too much for Jack? I guess we won't be able to answer these questions until we know for sure that the Aaron at the end of last night's show was indeed Claire's baby Aaron on the island just a few years later. And my wife makes an interesting point. Since Jack and Claire are half-siblings, they both have the same father, another one of Lost's fascinating, inexplicable coincidences, which I have been saying may hold the key to understanding what is really going on in Lost. You can find that on my blog, infiniteregress.tv. But since Jack and Clara have siblings, that would make Jack Aaron's half-uncle, which makes the relationship between Jack and Aaron even more interesting. Does Jack in the future know that he's Aaron's half-uncle? Probably not. But I assume he'll eventually find out. Now, the, the second point about last night's episode is about Kate and Sawyer, and uh, I'm not completely clear about what happened during the night and morning they spent together. We see them kissing passionately in bed, with not much in the way of clothes on. We see them wake up. Kate's cuddly and seductive. They're together in bed the next morning. But Kate doesn't want to sleep with Sawyer then, and Sawyer says they didn't sleep together the night before, and says he understands because Kate's still worried that she might be pregnant. But why would being pregnant make Kate not want to sleep with Sawyer, especially if the baby was Sawyer's? Not to get too clinical about this, but couples continue to sleep together in the early and even middle months of pregnancy, as just about everyone knows. Now, Kate quickly says she's not pregnant. Sawyer's delighted, and Kate leaves, presumably in part because she is not delighted, and not delighted at all that Sawyer is delighted. 
But Kate's motives for all of this are still not clear. Sawyer's explanation that Kate was upset about the possibility of being pregnant could be extended, I suppose, to Kate not wanting to get pregnant by sleeping with Sawyer. But this still doesn't explain what's going on in Kate's head. I guess the best we can say is Kate came to Sawyer, but loves Jack more, and that made her not want to sleep with Sawyer, even though kissing and cuddling were okay. Sawyer, not fully comprehending the depth of Kate's feeling for Jack, doesn't quite get this, and struggles to come up with an explanation. As are we. But that's part of the fun of the show. And the truth of Kate's feelings for Jack will, of course, play a crucial role in the continuing story of Lost on and off the island. And I'll be back next week with a review of Episode 5. going to run out and buy a copy of this immediately. This combines uh, three things that uh, I love uh, that are part of my life. Uh, ancient history, uh, specifically ancient Greek history, time travel, uh, ancient manuscripts. So I, I, will be, uh, I, I will be immediately running down to uh, the local Barnes & Noble picking up a copy of this. Hello, this is David G. Hartwell. I'm a senior editor at Tor and Forge Books in New York. I've been editing science fiction since 1970. I've edited a lot of people over the course of my career, but I'm pleased to also be the editor of Paul Levinson. I edited his first novel, The Silk Code, and I edited his most recent novel, The Plot Save Socrates, and all the books in between. Author Paul Levinson. I'm Paul Levinson, and welcome to Levinson News Clips. And I'm continuing tonight with my reviews of the fabulous season four of Lost. And tonight I'm going to talk about episode 4.5, which many people are saying may be the best episode of Lost ever. Well, I certainly think it's at very least the second best episode ever to have been on Lost. And in many ways, it may be as good or even better than what most people think is the best episode, which would be the season three finale. Well, time travel is a wonderful, exquisite, but exasperating and paradoxical thing. It's shimmering and fragile, and yet it somehow embodies the most profoundly imaginable possibilities in the cosmos. It's exceedingly hard to do well, to tell a time travel story that doesn't flinch from those paradoxes, that embraces them, yet still tells us a story we can understand, at least for the most part. Journeyman on NBC last year rose to that occasion once in a splendid episode right before the finale. Journeyman was a time travel series. Lost was never really about time travel, but its Desmond story arc about a man who sees the future certainly could have been a time travel story, and I wrote in my reviews last year and talked about that in my podcast last year that time travel might well explain what was going on with Desmond and those people that he touched. Well, last night in Episode 5, Lost took just that path, 
or actually made good that path which it had already been well on its way to building. From the time Desmond unaccountably ran into Jack on the steps of the stadium, well before the flight of Oceanic 815, to the little experiment with timepieces we saw Faraday doing on the island a few weeks ago. Actually, Lost did better than make good on that. It made great, genius, golden television. Great for the episode. Great for the series. So here, for what it's worth, is my take on what we learned in last night's show. And I'm sure there are plenty of other explanations that people will be coming up with. And they may be as good or better than mine. But here's what I think. Let's think of the Desmond we saw before last night's episode as Desmond 1, with the exception of one incident which I'll get to shortly. Now, Desmond One breaks up with Penny. He travels around the world. He sees Jack on the steps of the stadium. This is the exception to Desmond One, as I'll explain below. And this Desmond winds up in the hatch on the island. He loves Penny now and wants to get back to her. The hatch blows up, exposing Desmond to intense radiation. He's still Desmond One, but he begins to have visions of the future. In one of the flashbacks last year, in episode 3.8, Desmond has a conversation with a Mrs. Hawking, played by the always memorable Fionula Flanagan, who, by the way, was also seen on Brotherhood. Now, she apparently has knowledge of Desmond and his future, which we and Desmond did not have at the time of that episode last year. And that was likely the second reference to Desmond, too. I'll get to the first in a few minutes. Anyway, Desmond One continues on the island. He plays the crucial role in getting Charlie to the looking glass, all of that fine stuff at the end of season three. The last we see of Desmond One, I think, is when he's on board the helicopter in last night's episode with Saeed, right before it goes off course. We learn that electromagnetic fields do strange things to people's perception of time. The hatch explosion radiation gave Desmond visions of the future. The strange properties of space-time around the island, in part natural, in part probably the result of some technology, boost Desmond's temporal powers to the point that his consciousness is now able to instantly uncontrollably travel through time. And this turns Desmond One into Desmond Two. This Desmond Two first emerges and travels from the helicopter off the island back to Desmond One in the army camp. But once the temporal connection is made between future Desmond Two and past Desmond One, the original Desmond, Desmond One, in that training camp, becomes Desmond Two. Desmond Two in the past, informed by Desmond Two in his future, our present, what we're seeing on our television screen, goes to Faraday in Oxford and Penny in London. The instant Desmond sees them and gives them information from the future, they too are turned into Faraday 2 
and Penny too. Now, the really heartwarming part of this story is that Penny too comes to serve as Desmond Two's constant. And Desmond too comes to serve as Faraday's constant. That's the word that's used in last night's episode. It's an anchor that saves their lives. Because as we learn from the unfortunate case of Minkowski, having your mind moving around in time can otherwise be fatal. And here's something else. I've long been citing Desmond's running into Jack on the steps in the first episode of season two as one of the inexplicable coincidences which may hold the keys to what's really going on in Lost. What are the odds of Desmond having run into Jack before Desmond wound up in the hatch on an island on which Jack crashed? I'd say all but nil. And I talk about that in more detail in my long blog post, actually an article, called Keys to What's Really Going On in Lost. And I think those keys are the coincidences, these inexplicable coincidences in the flashbacks. You can read that whole article on my infiniteregress.tv blog. That's I-N-F-I-N-I-T-E-R-E-G-R-E-S-S, all as one word, .tv. But getting back to last night's episode, I think we now have a rational explanation for the meeting between Jack and Desmond. It was not coincidence. Desmond spoke to Jack the way he did on those steps and went to meet him there in the first place because Desmond, too, needed to talk to Jack. Desmond, too, who, of course, already knew everything about Jack on the island because Desmond too had lived through that. Just as Desmond too was in touch with his earlier self in the army camp in Oxford, in London, last night, so I'm thinking that Desmond too was at some point that we haven't seen, in touch with his earlier self before that meeting with Jack in the stadium. And why did Desmond need to meet and speak to Jack? Because Desmond, too, knew how crucial Jack would be in helping Desmond get off the island and get back in touch with Penny. I'm Paul Levinson, and I'll be back here next week with my review of Lost 4.6. Enjoy. Author Paul Levinson... I'm Paul Levinson. This is Levinson News Clips. And I'm continuing tonight with my reviews of Lost Season 4. And tonight we'll look at Episode 4.6. Now, although the primary character in last night's episode was Juliet, I think the person we really learned the most about was Ben. Now, ever since Ben was introduced to Lost in Season 2, his goodness and badness, his truest motives, have been in doubt, to say the least. For the most part, Ben has seemed no good. After all, he gassed all the Dharma people to death. He killed his father, who may have been a lousy, uncaring, brutal father. But even so, young Ben killed him pretty coldly. 
And if Ben hasn't since then outrightly murdered too many other people, he's certainly all too often goaded and played games with their minds to his benefit and their detriment. Now, just a few weeks ago in the powerful Saeed episode, on the other hand, we see Ben at the end perhaps standing up to and coordinating the fight against what he says are the real bad guys. Perhaps. And last night, although all uncertainties were by no means cleared up, we see Ben back to more usual form, being pretty despicable. Jealous of Juliet's love for Goodwin, Ben in a flashback assigns him to infiltrate the tallies after the crash, knowing the danger that posed to Goodwin. And after Anna Lucia kills Goodwin, and Juliet asks Ben why he put Goodwin in such danger, Ben responds to Juliet that she belongs to Ben. But that's all in the past, and it's by no means the worst of Ben we saw last night, because it seems now that someone wants poison gas to be released all over the island. Dan and Charlotte rush to the facility, we think at first, to release the gas. Now, that's what we think because Goodwin's wife comes to Juliet in the present on the island and tells her Ben needs her to kill Dan and Charlotte before they release the gas. But when Juliet gets to the facility, both Dan and Charlotte swear they are trying to stop the gas from being released, not release it, and the equipment seems about to release the gas. We see one of those red warning things moving perilously close to the top. So should we trust those two, especially after Charlotte has knocked Kate out cold with the back of a gun a little earlier in the jungle? Well, it turns out that we can, because Dan completes his work and no poison gas is released. And just to make matters worse, Locke has released Ben from the barracks because Ben has revealed to Locke the identity of Ben's man on the boat. We, the viewers, don't find this out, but it has to be either Michael or maybe a much older Walt, although both of those are pretty obvious. So maybe it is someone that we're just not thinking of. It has to be someone who's important enough to Locke that Ben would say, you better be seated when I tell you this. But, in any case, Ben certainly looks much more evil than he has in a while. Assuming, of course, that that whole gas contraption wasn't some kind of ruse. I'm Paul Levinson, and I'll see you back here next week with my review of Lost 4.7 story by Paul Levinson. Now, the Chronology Protection Case. Author Paul Levinson. I'm Paul Levinson. This is Levinson News Clips, and I'm continuing tonight with my review of the superb season four of Lost. And tonight we'll be talking about the beautiful, bittersweet episode seven of Lost, which featured Son in a flash-forward about seven months into the future, giving birth to her baby. 
Sun is definitely one of the Oceanic Six. Jin is rushing to the hospital with a big stuffed panda bear baby present. Sun calls out for him in the delivery room. But Jin is not among the Oceanic Six. What we're seeing here is not Sun and Jin in the same flash forward, not Jin in a flash forward at all, because Jin's in a flashback from before he and Sun wound up on the island. And the stuffed panda he's bringing is a present from his boss to the ambassador whose wife is having a baby. All of this is in the past. Now this flashback mimicking a flash forward is deftly done. Jin pays a lot of money for the stuffed panda he brings to the hospital and we think Jin has this money because he's one of the Oceanic Six. But it's his boss's money Jin's waving around. Because Jin never got off the island. In the flash forward, Sun, accompanied by Hurley, takes her newborn baby to Jin's gravesite. The date of the death on the tombstone is 22 September 2004. But this isn't true either. Jin, of course, is alive later than that. We know this is true. And, of course, that's the time when Jin fathered son's baby. So the date of death is a lie. Likely, Jin is one of the people Kate couldn't save in the lie Jack told about their time on the island at Kate's trial. Or perhaps Jin is one who is assumed to have died on the actual crash of Oceanic 815. But Jin's death is likely not a lie. Though perhaps, just perhaps, Jin lives on the island. If the island's recuperative powers work their magic on whatever the injury that really killed Jin. Because the island, as we know, is not only a powerful restorative for some people, but it's a powerful adhesive that keeps its inhabitants close at hand. Somehow it might be keeping Jin there. It certainly kept Michael nearby, or at any rate, Ben did. For we also find out in Episode 7 that Ben's secret agent on the boat is none other than Michael, which actually was the obvious choice, and especially since Harold Perrineau's name has been in the credits from the very beginning of this season. I don't know, by the way, why they do that. I mean, I know that the actors and actresses like having their names in the credits. That certainly makes sense. But surely there has to be a better way than displaying the name of an actor who we know plays a character, and then that character's appearance on the show, if it's supposed to be a surprise, well, it's no surprise at all. But the big question now is, who is the last of the Oceanic Six? Not Jin, not likely Claire, since Kate is now Aaron's mother. Not likely Locke, who of all the original Losties is the most attached to the island. Now there are some people who think it may be Aaron, but I have a hard time considering Aaron in utero, which is what he was on the flight, as 
in any legal public sense, a passenger uh, of Flight 815. I mean, his name was surely not on the manifest because he hadn't been born yet. Some people also think Michael could be the sixth of the Oceanic Six, and that's now certainly possible, given that we now know that Michael is there on the boat with Saeed and Desmond offshore. But I'm putting my money on Sawyer. Well, we'll probably find out who the sixth person is of the Oceanic Six next week with Episode 8. And I'll be back here with my review of that episode then. In the meantime, enjoy. Hello? Dr. D'Amato? Yes? Um, I'm calling you about my husband. He's disappeared and I haven't heard from him in two days. He was working on something called quantum signaling. You're a forensic scientist. You can help find reasons for things, but you also have some understanding about theoretical physics. Do you understand why I called you? Yeah. Good. Do you know anything about quantum fluctuations of an electromagnetic field that's represented by particle-antiparticle pairs? No. Warren said that they were working on quantum signaling, right? Yes, signaling pairs of quantum particles. In a tangled state. Particles that are created together and then travel apart in opposite directions. It goes much deeper than that. They were working on a device that could send messages to the particles. They called it quantum signaling. Ian was just a, a random victim in the wrong place at the wrong time. Not random. The project was sealed up really tightly. By the government? No, by the researchers themselves. It's the fact that it happened that counts the reason it happened. It's probably something different, some completely different hidden variable. <sighs> Four of the seven are now dead. Jack was killed this morning with Dave Strauss. And if these kind of paradoxes start happening all over the place, eventually it starts to unravel the whole cause and effect nature of the universe. So that's what the scientists did? I can't ignore this. Dr. Hayes, there were other ways of looking at this. Story by Paul Levinson. Now, the chronology protection case. I'm Paul Levinson, and this is Levinson News Clips, with my review of Episode 8 of the fourth season of Lost. Now, this is the final episode of the first part of the fourth season. The episode was mostly about Michael, but in some ways, I think the most important part of this episode may have been about Alex. First, about Michael. His story was superbly told in this episode in a flashback that goes back not to before the crash of 8.15, but to the time after Ben sets Michael and Walt free from the island. In fact, when we first see this flashback, it's not entirely clear that it isn't a flash-forward to the time after the Oceanic Six have left the island, because Michael like Jack in his flash-forward, is despondent, and he tries to take his own life. And like Jack, Michael doesn't succeed. Tom appears and explains to Michael just why he couldn't commit suicide, 
But first, Tom's very appearance tells us this is a flashback to after Michael first left the island, not an Oceanic 6 flash-forward. Because, as we saw at the end of Season 3, Tom will return to the island and be killed by Sawyer when Hurley prevents the execution of Sawyer, Saeed, and Bernard by the others who are exceeding Ben's command. This, by the way, was one of my all-time favorite scenes in Lost, and it still is. But, back in Michael's flashback in Episode 8, Tom, not yet killed by Sawyer, tells Michael that the island won't let Michael die. Michael already tried to kill himself by crashing his car into a barrier. He survived that, and after his meeting with Tom, Michael finds he can't kill himself with a bullet to the head either. But why not? What's the island's game in this? It's not clear, except, ironically, it didn't work for Tom back on the island at the end of Season 3. And in that same finale, it apparently did prevent Jack from jumping off the bridge in his flash-forward. This is fascinating and important because it also may tie into the recuperative powers of the island on Locke, maybe Rose, etc. It was one of the two most important parts of Michael's story last night, which, by the way, had some great acoustic markers with sounds on the ship reminiscent of sounds in the hatch and Mama Cass singing another great song. It's getting better. I always loved her voice. But the other part of last night's episode ties into the second branch of that episode. Michael's relationship with Ben, who has a crucial conversation with Michael, in which Ben reminds Michael that Michael killed Anna Lucia and Libby on his own initiative, not under Ben's orders. This is very important also, I think, because it gets again to Ben's true nature. How truly evil is Ben? Seemingly good, back on the island in the present, when Ben pleads with Alex to flee to the temple, so she is nowhere near Ben when Widmore's people come after him. Alex reluctantly goes, along with her boyfriend Carl and her mother Rousseau. As the three get close to the temple, an unseen sniper kills Alex's boyfriend. Rousseau soon dies. Only Alex survives, presumably because we, of course, can never be sure with that island. So for all we know, maybe Carl and Rousseau will come back to life. But were the bullets fired by Ben's enemies? Well, that's the obvious conclusion. But I'm wondering if maybe Ben wasn't behind this, wanting to get Carl and Rousseau totally out of the way so Ben can be Alex's father once again with no interference, which, of course, is the way things were before the end of Season 3. Now, that would make Ben a pretty evil person. And, yeah, I'm thinking that's just what Ben is. Entertainment Weekly says the plot to save Socrates is challenging fun.
The New York Daily News says it's a Da Vinci-esque thriller. And Curled Up with a Good Book says Sierra Waters is sexy as hell. You can find out more about The Plot to Save Socrates by Paul Levinson at theplottosavesocrates.com. Back now with uh, some additional thoughts. I've been thinking about Michael's unswerving drive to kill himself in episode 8, whether by car, gun, or bomb. And the more I think about it, I, I think it's based on more than just Walt's rejection of Michael. After Michael tells Walt about Michael's murder of Anna Lucia and Libby. I think Michael's commitment to end his life shows us that he's a fundamentally good person. Because even if Walt had accepted him, Michael would have found it difficult to live with himself. He's not a killer. He shot Anna Lucia because he didn't want any witness to his freeing Ben, a witness that could have interfered with Michael's reunion with Walt. Now, that murder was certainly not admirable, but it was based on love for Michael's son, not on hate or greed. And Michael's shooting of Libby was just an unthinking reflex. It was horrible, but it was not premeditated. It was ignited when Libby surprised Michael. So that being the case, I'm thinking Michael may be on a course to some kind of redemption, something that at the end of this year, when we get into the second part of season four, might allow Michael to set things right in his universe. Now, Ben is another story. He reminds me of Sloan in Alias, J.J. Abrams' other great production. Sloan was also a genius, not only in intelligence, but in walking a razor-thin line between good and evil to the point that the audience couldn't tell and wouldn't find out until the very last episodes of Alias that Sloan was evil. And I'm guessing this is precisely the trajectory we'll be treated to with Ben. He keeps saying he's one of the good guys, and we do see him do some good, as Tom did in Helping, in quotes, Michael. But there always seems to be a deeper motive for Ben, which is not so good. In the end, it may be Widmore who is the better man. Now, let's talk about something else. In fact, I've been debating about whether to talk about what was in the coming attractions at the end of Episode 8 of Lost, mainly because I don't like coming attractions settling debates that are going on among fans. These kinds of debates are, after all, one of the joys of watching and loving a television show these days, when you can discuss your interpretations with other fans. And Lost, from its very beginning was always intertwined with the web. But the coming attractions were so unmistakable on one crucial point that I guess they can't be ignored. Because the voiceover says the Oceanic Six have been revealed, and we see pictures of Jack, Saeed, Sun, Hurley, Aaron, and Kate. I was hoping that maybe... There was a quick shot of Michael or Sawyer just before or after. But that just isn't there. 
And so the only conclusion we can come to, unless the coming attractions were deliberately lying to us, is that baby Aaron is one of the Oceanic Six. Now, I've always loved babies. Uh, I'm a beaming father as well as uncle. But I've got to say that I don't like Aaron being among the Oceanic Six. Yes, we've learned that the whole Oceanic Six story is a lie. That was clear at Kate's trial. But weaving Aaron into it just doesn't add up. Is part of the lie that Claire gave birth to Aaron on the plane? I guess that could work since Aaron would at that point have become a passenger, still not on the manifest, but a passenger. But if Aaron is said to have been born on the island, then he was in no legal sense ever a passenger of the plane. True, Aaron would have survived the crash, and I guess that would give some logic to his inclusion in the Oceanic Six. Now, we do know that Aaron is the reason that Jack can't get together with Kate, We've yet to see under what circumstances the Oceanic Six leave the island. Depending upon how those issues are resolved, Aaron's inclusion in the Oceanic Six would make a bit more sense than it does now. Until then, count me as skeptical and not happy about Aaron being the sixth. And coming attraction producers on ABC? Next time, keep your traps shut. Hey, it's still a great series. I love it. But don't spoil it for us by giving away crucial elements in the coming attractions. And that's the sweet music of our promo suite. And you're going to hear promos from Mike Thinks News. The savviest podcast in town. For Sean Farrell's patio book of my first novel, The Silk Code. The Punk Horror Podcast. We're just about out of time. I look forward to talking to you next time. In the meantime, sit back, relax, and enjoy. the Mike Thinks Podcast, www.mikethinks.com. News and current events with an opinion. The Mike Thinks Podcast. It's the news you missed. www.mikethinks.com. The Locus Award-winning novel by Paul Levinson comes to life in this free podcast novel. Journey into the ancient world. Witness the wonder of ages past and join Phil D'Amato in a struggle against forces both ruthless and unseen. Visit www.thesilkcode.blogspot.com to learn more about the author and the novel. And subscribe today at patiobooks.com. Coming to you every other week from Punk Horror Press, featuring The Punk and the Pastor, a movie review show featuring David Giannis and Stacey Campbell. 
and author Red Fiction, featuring the best in horror and punk fiction. Don't miss it. Subscribe now at www.punkhorror.com.